hello and welcome to this YouTube live stream with some of my favorite authors to discuss writing ghost stories. So I am Ellie Betts. With me today are Matty Dalrymple from the Indie Author Podcast. Hello. We have <laughs> we have Daniel Wilcox from the Activated Authors Podcast and my favorite podcast co-host, Miss Casey Adams uh, from our very own Writer's Mindset Podcast. Um, first and foremost then, Matty, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I am Maddie Dowernpool. I am the author of the Anne Kinner Suspense Novels and Suspense Shorts and the Lizzie Ballard Thrillers. And I also write, speak, and consult on the uh, writing craft and the publishing voyage. And I podcast about what I know and learn from my guests on the Indie Author Podcast. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Daniel Wilcox, tell the, author, uh, tell the audience what it is that you do, please. Hello. So yeah, I'm Daniel Wilcox. Uh, I started writing in, it was 2015 when I first uh, released my, well, my first ever fiction novel. And it's been an adventure from there. So now I am the um, CEO of Activated Authors and I do all the coaching and help authors behind the scenes there. I am the founder of Devil's Rock Publishing, which focuses primarily, primarily on horror fiction. And I write my own horror fiction and do all things creepy with the Other Stories podcast, which is a horror podcast. So I'm quite excited to get stuck in and talk all things ghosts today. It's definitely an interesting topic. And Christina slash Casey Adams slash whichever name you want to use today, remind <laughs> us who the hell you are, please. So my name is Christina Adams. I am one half of the Writer's Mindset team. I have published 20 books, uh, five of which are ghost stories, the latest of which is The Mean Girl's Murder, which came out last month and I can't even hold up right. And that's it. I still love that cover. Um, and... I can't remember what else to say. I talk about my dog a lot and I have a sore throat, so I may sound a bit dodgy or just start making absolutely no sense because it's sending me delirious. So, yeah, could get interesting. The usual then. The usual then. Thanks. Normal form. Thanks, Ellie. Uh, <laughs> the first question I have on my little roster here today, then, everyone, is do you believe in ghosts? Let's pick anyone first. Dan first. That's a question. So, I. I kind of flip back and forth. I think where I've settled over the years is that I'm pretty, um, I don't even know that it's agnostic. I think just broadly speaking, I'm one of those people where I, if you can't disprove something or prove something, I'm not going to claim that I don't believe in it or that it can't be there. So, you know, I've seen a lot of things over the years, not really firsthand because they've all been explained with like hindsight or science. Um, but there have been a lot of things that I've watched and read and heard from different people who have experienced things that are for want of a better way of saying it, unexplainable. Um, I am a believer that there are forces outside of what humans can understand that, you know, makes sense. And if we are all stardust and matter that has come from the Big Bang and the cosmic universe, and that's, you know, proven to be in every single one of us, then why, can, why can't matter then exist in alternate ways that we might not necessarily understand? So I'm not a firm believer. I'm not someone that goes like, yes, they absolutely exist, but I'm definitely not a denier. That's such a logical answer. I like that. I like a logical that. guy in science. Yeah. Also, I would very quickly like to add for people watching, what well, most people watching this YouTube, I have an ulcer. So if my mouth goes a bit weird or I'm like, I stumble, that's why I have a very big ulcer. But I'll throw oh, that in. Oh, no. <laughs> that sounds horrendous. What about yourself, Matty? Do you believe in ghosts? I would agree with what Daniel said that um, 
I myself have never had an encounter with a ghost that I'm aware of, at least. I've uh, had the fortune, the fortunate situation that my husband's family has. My husband has a great story of being at the Gettysburg Battlefield. And if any place was going to be haunted, it would be the Gettysburg Battlefield. And he, this was many years ago, he had gone with his family and they were out on the battlefield at night and they were walking back from the, the um, you know, historic location that they had visited and he felt his dad sort of pushing him along from behind like he was trying to get him to hurry along and he turned around and nobody was there <laughs> um oh, that's so spooky. i love things like that and i myself have never had that kind of experience i think i'm the kind of person that would always try to figure out a way to explain it logically first but i agree with daniel that um I, it seems perfectly plausible to me. I just feel like I haven't been in maybe the right place at the right time. Yeah, very logical again. I don't know. I feel like we need um, we need more of a believer here. And Casey Adams is not going to be that person for me. I already know it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't believe in them. I'm not like I like to be open to things, but I know that the mind can play the most horrific tricks on us, and. 99% of things can be explained by the mind essentially being a massive dickhead to us. So <laughs> I mean, yes, I I think personally I sort of I would just tip over into the realm of believing, but I I'm yet to see anything super concrete enough to fully say yes, I believe. You know? I mean, some Maybe weird just... stuff happens in your house. There has been some loads weird of stuff, weird stuff in your house. In my house. We need stories. Yeah. <laughs> just like <laughs> Things being knocked over for seemingly no reason and like doors being opened. Um, I'd be sat in the lounge, which is below my bedroom, and I hear footsteps all the time going across my bedroom, but never when I'm in the bedroom. Um, just lots of little things that like, again, I'm like, I can't see what else would be doing that but it's not enough. Like I need to see that ghost walk across the bedroom. <laughs> 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 but maybe maybe one day maybe one day do you we're think all such then... cynics yeah maybe, maybe we're not <laughs> um the best people to ask <laughs> do you think then you have to believe in ghosts to write a ghost story christina uh no um obviously because we've all managed to write about scary things um for me like i said the mind loves playing tricks on us right and it loves particularly when we're in some sort of state of fear, all sorts of crazy things can happen. You know, if you're in a prolonged state of fear, if you're trapped in fight or flight mode, that can be a trigger for chronic pain, for fatigue, for brain fog, for um, tinnitus and all sorts when you're stuck in that. So it's not a massive leap for the brain to then invent things like hearing noises, like seeing things when we're in that state of fear and um one of the podcasts that i listened to uncanny highly recommend they did an experiment on the host um dan's nodding did you listen to that episode dan not that one no but i'm familiar with the podcast yeah it's uh it was in season one i think or it might have been the battersea poltergeist they experimented on him which is the same host and basically they made him stay up overnight possibly for like two days watching horror movies on his own and it got to the point where he was just terrified of everything and all his senses were heightened so even the tiniest sound the, the the smallest situation he was absolutely terrified and imagining all these things when actually it was just the um oh what's the word 
not the, the the guy running the experiment doing these things in that environment and so it goes to show actually what that state of fear can do to us um so i think you know believing in ghosts or not believing in ghosts can influence how you write and it can potentially make it more interesting. And that's what makes your story uniquely yours as well. You know, if I wasn't listening to things like Uncanny and reading different um, ghost books, like I've got one downstairs on ancient Egyptian magic for a, a future book research. If it wasn't for those things, the stuff would turn out very differently. I like that. So do you listen to those stories of people getting scared, regardless of whether or not it's real? real um and use that kind of scared experience in your writing then yeah kind of yeah I think it's useful for stuff like uncanny because when I'm listening to that they have people who believe and people who don't believe analyzing the story and that's why it really appeals to me because it's showing both sides of the argument so I, I like that balanced angle and one of my characters is a parapsychologist and he can see ghosts as well. So he knows when they're real and when they're not. And obviously most of us don't have that luxury. But for him, he's also deeply skeptical of certain methods. Like one of my favorite scenes that I wrote recently was him having a massive rant about dowsing rods. And his girlfriend's like, come away. Come away, crazy person. Come away. She's just trying <laughs> to hide him out of the shop. And he's just going off on one. I like that. What about you, Matty? Do you find not believing gets in the way at all? Or do you find it helps with your writing of ghost stories? Well, I don't know that it, I suppose it helps in the sense that I'm not bound by actual experiences that I might feel like, oh, well, it, you know, the experience is or isn't like this. Uh, I've just always been fascinated with the idea of a world where 90% of it is normal, but you just tweak one thing. And for me, uh, for the Ann Kinnear books, uh, the one thing is that she can uh, sense and later in the series communicate with dead people. And I just find that fascinating. The um, sort of theme of my books is what happens when an extraordinary ability transforms an ordinary life. So for Anne, that extraordinary ability is her ability to sense dead people. And I think that um, from the point of view of writing a story, there's just something intrinsically uh, interesting and, and lots of things you can do with the idea of someone who can speak to dead people because, you know, not only is there the whole background of how does she feel about this ability that she has, um, you know, she has to deal with people who think she's crazy or think she's lying or think she's a charlatan or whatever, um, but also just practically, you know, uh, she can she can speak to people who, for example, saw the crime happen and then she has the dilemma of, well, now she knows who done it, uh, how does she, what does she do with that information? So it's just, um, to me, an intrinsically interesting and almost limitless opportunity <laughs> for fun plot twists and uh, story ideas. I like that concept of it freeing you, because I suppose, like you say, if you did have all these really firm beliefs about ghosts and how they worked and stuff, that's, that could be very limiting potentially, couldn't it? Yeah, I have never done, I've done lots of research into other aspects of my books, but I've never done research into the ghost aspect because I want to completely make it up. And I don't want to read something that says, you know, the, the air is always colder around a ghost. Well, if it's convenient for me to make it warmer, then I want to be able to make it warmer without <laughs> being burdened with <laughs> factual information about what the ghost experience is like. Yeah, facts, authors, we don't need to worry about that, right? No, uh, no. Throw I that straight out the window. <laughs> 
I've got to say, I am the opposite purely because it means it's less work. <laughs> I do the research because I like learning new things anyway. So then I just manipulate it to what I want. So I try and base what I'm writing as much kind of in reality as possible. And in um, The Witch's Sacrifice, which is book four, there was this scene where I had to like have someone go missing. And I was like, well, how would this work? How would they report that to the police? And how would that? I'm like, hold on a minute. They're ghosts. They're necromancers. There's a witch. Like, a reader's really going to care about one sentence. But there was this part of me obsessing over, like, that one sentence description more than the ghost element. Yeah, I think that the important thing is you're making it consistent within the world you've built, right? You know, if you've, yeah. if you've decided that uh, the ghosts in your story behave in a certain way, then you have to make sure that they either keep behaving that way or you have a damn good explanation of why it's different in this case. You can't just say, oh, you know, and what else? They can... Um, teleport to another part of the country <laughs> yeah it's i actually had that issue with book five i had that issue with book five because i needed to up the ante and i was like how do i do that so i had to make this ghost more powerful than everything else i have ever done whilst not breaking the law that i'd spent four books building not shooting myself in the foot for the next five to ten books because it's gonna be quite a long series yeah. um and that was a lot of work and a lot of headaches but the reader reaction has actually been phenomenal. Like, I've never had a more positive reaction. And several of my ARC readers who've been with me since, like, for a good few years now, even pre-Afterlife Calls, have said it's the best book I've ever written. And that just, like, it completely floored me. I didn't expect nice. that at all. I mean, it's amazing, obviously. But when you're, like, that focused on just getting the thing done, you're not, half the time you're like, is this any good? I can't remember anymore. I don't know what I'm doing. What is life? Like, I'm just surrounded by imaginary ghosts. <laughs> Maybe we Victorian. all are right now, surrounded <laughs> by real yeah. ghosts. We don't know, guy. We don't know, guy. Like, I mean, the amount of times Millie barks at absolutely nothing. Who knows anymore? Anything sets yeah. that dog off. So, mm. I, I literally had my son one morning come down. And he was about three. Yeah, about three. We we're about to head out. And it was just us two in the house. And we got to the bottom of the stairs. And I was like, come on, then, let's go. And he literally just turned up, looked up the stairs and went, bye, see you later. And there was no one there. I was like, no. what have you seen? Yeah, yeah. But I think for like for my answer to the so the question is like, if we have to believe in ghosts in order to write ghost stories, that kind of makes us crumble as writers because there's so much that I write that I don't believe in. But like, you know, I've written stories about wendigos and vampires and werewolves and all these kind of things. And it's you don't necessarily you don't ever have to believe in something in order to create a comprehensive experience. That's one of the things that we do as writers is imagine and put ourselves in those shoes. And, you know, we're the conduit between those ideas and the readers who might be a bit more struggling to be creative. And one of the other things I find quite interesting is that in this conversation so far, we've very much defaulted to what the Western view of a ghost is. And there hasn't been a discussion about you know all the different types of ghosts that might exist around the world i was quite fortunate a few years ago and obviously i can't go into the full details but i go through a, uh, a series of books that involved someone who could speak to all different sorts of specters and they traveled the globe and things and so for that a lot of the research was looking at folklore from you know asia and europe and america and canada and australia and all these different places and there is so much in the way of, of ghost laws. Like if you want to write a ghost story, but you're not really sure where to start, like just load up the Wikipedia page on ghost law from the world, because, you know, people have different ideas on what happens if someone like has unfinished business. There are some really dark ones that I won't go into because that goes right into the sort of very, very horror side. Um, 
but you know there's animal ghost stuff there's spiritual bits you've got your poltergeist you've got just general orbs and will-o'-wisps and you've got all these different things that are you know quote signs from the afterlife that people can explore and write and play with and kind of like what you're saying christina you had to up that ante and there's no reason you can't do that because you know who's to say that whatever force came from one person that went into a spirit isn't then manifested and made bigger or conjoined you know there's there's kind of no limit when it comes to ghosts as to what you can do and I suppose as well, the thought that just occurred to me there was, obviously we're saying maybe we don't believe in ghosts, but we write ghost stories. A lot of authors don't believe in a lot of things they write. Like you say, Dan, vampires and wendigos and whatever anyone wants to write about. But in I imagine a lot of the origins of these creatures come from stories where people did genuinely believe, right? The folklore tales, the stories that were shared around um I want to say the campfire then. That sounds really cliche, sharing stories around the campfire. Oh, but you know though. what I mean? Well, yeah, that is, that is the heart of it. That's the origin of where all these stories came from. And I mean, mm-hmm. ghost stories and horror stories, but like any kind of story, it all originated from that very s- small clustered sit around the campfire. And so much of it was, you know, early ancestors exploring what the world is and what the unknown is. And so a lot of our perceptions of ghosts and things are that legacy of, you know, people seeing things that they couldn't explain. And then, Christina, like, I totally agree with you. There are certain things where, like, my, my first, well, my most vivid experience, in quote, um with a ghost was uh, a couple of years back and i was lying in bed and i used to have a batman dressing gown that was basically black with yellow trim and i hung that on the edge of my door and i closed my door and went to bed and i woke up at one in the morning for whatever reason just a bit of a chill opened my eyes and there was just a woman just like black and white imprinted just leaning over me for like half a second before i sat up turned on the light and i was like oh crap like what is this and I was, I was, I'll be honest, I was really riled by it because it's the middle of the night and you're confused. But then what I figured out was that I'd left the window open in my study and the air had blown my door open to the point that where the dressing gown was, because the door was wide open at this point, the dressing gown was like right next to me. And as I looked at it very quickly in that moment, my very creatively adult mind for my dreams just went, ah, ghost. And so a lot of, that's where a lot of it does come from. Um, but then I have unexplained things like I had a loft hatch that literally had little metal hooks that hooked into, you know, with a hatch open. So you have to unhook them to push it up. And I came out of my bedroom one morning and that was just lifted and off. And there's like physically no way that I can think of to put into why that would happen. But then, you know, not everything can be explained. Sometimes more fun when it's not. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, isn't that the fun when you know you get to tell retell these stories and it shocks everyone around our little campfire here? Look, yes. <laughs> Out of interest, then um, I'm going to start with Matty on this one. Where do you get your inspiration from? Then I know you said you don't necessarily research too much. You like to make things up. Where do you get that inspiration from? If you don't believe in ghosts, well, the the ghost part is almost incidental. I hate to say that, but after the first book, which is The Sense of Death, The Sense of Death, um, which is almost, I realized, kind of the Anne Kinnear uh, origin story. It's her ability in it is much less than in later books, and it's really sort of setting the stage for her um, coming to terms with it. It's not a mystery. It's the reader sees the murder happen, you know, right on the page, and so it's really suspense in the sense that um, Anne's, um, Anne's storyline and the murderer's storyline are gradually converging over the course of the book. And of course, the question is, you know, uh, how will Anne fare when those two storylines intersect? Um, but in the, in the later books, 
um, her ability to communicate with um, spirits is much greater. And it's really, it's really like communicating with anyone. You know, one of the points she makes to people, other characters in the book is there's no reason to be afraid of, of ghosts unless the person whose ghost it is was someone you would be afraid of. Like ghosts aren't intrinsically more or less scary as ghosts than they were as people. That doesn't mean that uh, some of them aren't problematic, but they would have been problematic if they were alive anyway. And so the stories I come up with are really, um, have been based on all sorts of different things. In the case of the sense of death, it was based on a particular scene that I visualized very clearly in my mind um, for my most recent book, which is um, Be With the Dead. It was because I wanted to write a book about the writing and publishing worlds. <laughs> I thought this would be a fun place to do it. Um, sometimes it's on a topic, like I'm a big aviation buff. I took uh, flying lessons for quite a while, um, which I stopped doing when um, when I published my second book because I just had to pick what I was going to spend my time on. Uh, I was a, a plane owner for a brief period of time, um, but I love aviation. And uh, oh, here's my um, Avondale Airport is one of the um, airports in The Falcon and the Owl, which is my third book. So that was inspired by me wanting to write a story about um, aviation. And of course, if they're going to be dead person, people, there's going to be a plane crash and, um, like that. So the inspirations come from many different areas, but they're usually not based on it being a ghost story. The, the ghosts sort of factor in just as any character would factor into that story. That's, um, coming from a different inspiration. That's cool. It's kind of like the story and the characters first and the ghosts just add to it. They're an additional factor kind of thing. Right. If you just happen to have a character who is invisible to a certain number of people and therefore can um, overhear things that that people don't know they're overhearing or things like that, then it just um, it's like having a super adaptable character <laughs> to put it work in a thriller or suspense mystery story. Mm, adds lots of interesting scenarios. What about yourself, Dad? I know you write about all sorts of terribly scary things where do you find inspiration for this kind of horror i mean it's a typical question isn't it like it, it comes <laughs> from everywhere um i think when it comes to writing things like ghosts i i do love a good haunted house story so you know you've got like haunting of hill house um home before dark by riley sega you've got a uh, house of leaves technically isn't a ghost story but it really plays on that sense of the unknown and it's a beautiful book um but I, I very much am interested in in the folklore stuff, like I kind of mentioned it. So those origin stories that are everywhere, where have they come from? How do they get somewhere? And what I tend to, well, it's not really what I've done so far, but it's something I'm very much intending to do now, is try to find more of those stories to tell some of the forgotten ones that don't get heard all that much. So like going into forests and going into creeks and swamps and just looking around the world to see where they come from. But, you know, there are, as I've already mentioned, you know, there are web pages just filled with different types of spirits, you know, their origin and how they get there. Um, there are books published by different houses that have all these folklore myths and different types of ghosts and stuff. And it really is, there are hundreds upon thousands. Um, you know, there was one, I can't remember all the ins and outs, but there was like a, a hag over in sort of Japan way, there are like goblin ghosts, there are all these different things that exist. And so, you know, you can look at all of these and go, okay, you can have that kind of straight 
um, what we perceive as ghosts, you know, in in our society, and just go, you know, our friend has died, this person has died, and they're back in this way. Or you can get fun with it, you can get funky with it, you can get really, really creepy and kind of go, okay, there's like smoke slivering under the door. Now it's and it's the morphous shape that's turning into something solid. It's now at the end of the bed, and then suddenly it's not, and it's up behind you. And you know, there's all these different things that you can do to play with it. That you know, it's it's fun. It's part of why we write to be creative and just to to find something different and have that joy with ghosts scaring people (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say tapping into all those really common relatable human fears right Mm -hmm. oh 100 like that's that's the heart of the ghost story and the reason why they've been so pervasive through the years because you know the earliest ghost story i remember ever hearing is the one about you know the person in the forest and the the hook for the hand like swinging on the glass i don't know if that like resonates with anyone i can't remember the full thing so i won't embarrass myself by saying the whole (laughs) thing there but like that kind of fear is such an innate human thing that we have to deal with from the minute that we're born until the moment that we die and so ghost stories in a way are our way of kind of flirting with that line playing with that and going you know how would i handle myself in this situation you know how do i harden myself to these kind of scenarios which we know probably aren't going to happen but other scary things will and so it serves sometimes as a bit of a proxy for the darker things in life which is kind of why i write horrors because I, I use it in a way to process the darker things that I either haven't experienced or like I'm concerned about experiencing. Um, but yeah, I mean, it has to, for, for me, a ghost story really has to play with the heart of what it is to be scared and to be human and to worry and to be in that unknown situation. And the most effective ghost stories that I've ever read are the ones that the ghosts aren't explained. And it's, and sometimes I think in Haunting of Hill House, they do, um, it's Susan, oh, what's her name? hill shirley jackson uh, shirley jackson what yeah. am i thinking yeah shirley jackson thank you mate the characters have hill as the surname i think the house is still called hill house but i'm fairly sure the surname might be that more there than is a character be. called susan so that'll be why you got the name susan there we go but yeah like the one of the things i loved about that was it was so slow to reveal anything horrific you just saw what was happening through or you heard it through walls or like all these kind of really obscure twisting um sort of motifs and things that that really knock you unsteady and knock you off your feet. And I think that's where fear comes from is that moment where you can really disorientate someone and take away the floor. Um, and most of the time I really, you know, I've written monsters where I have put monsters in front of people, but most of the time I try for as long as I can just to hold back the actual reveal because there's nothing scarier than what is in your own head of the unknown. Absolutely. I've seen films and I won't name and shame here. We don't like to name and shame when we're disappointed with what happened. But um, there was a film I watched and it was sort of a late third edition to the series. And they revealed, they like showed you what this monster looked like from the first two uh, that's been like terrorizing them for these three films. And it was at that point that I just lost it. I was like, this is rubbish. Like, I, I, that's not even scary anymore. It's a lot scarier. When it's yep. unknown, right? When anything is possible. Yes, it's the same in, um, uh, there's a film called The Ritual, which was a, a book originally by a guy called Adam Neville. And the book is phenomenal because you never really see the creature. But then in the film, like to be fair, like most of the film you don't see it, but in the last sort of couple of minutes you do. And it's it's never going to be as scary as you think it is. Like your head will do everything to to scare the hell out of you. And the minute you put a face to it, it's the same with them. Um, when I first saw the visual reveal for Voldemort in the Harry Potter films, I was like, he's no longer scary to me. Like, it's just not, yeah. like, in my head, I don't know what I was picturing, but it just wasn't that. I think a and great I... example of avoiding that is uh, Blur Witch Project. Mm. Because you really never see. Yeah, that it, was what I was talking totally about. in your mind, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's brilliant. That's shame. Okay, the third one in the Ooh, series is terrible. In... Don't okay. see it. <laughs> I haven't yeah, seen I just any thought, of I... them. 
I, I, just, I, I thought the first one was great. So yeah. effective. It sh- and yeah, like like you say, it shows so much of what you can do to build fear without having to show any monster at yeah. all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just that end scene where you walk in and they're facing the wall. I was playing Animal Crossing earlier and walked into <laughs> my neighbor's house and they were facing the wall in the opposite corner and it still got me. Yeah. Oh, Animal God. Crossing. Yeah. <laughs> That's how good Blair Witch was. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's just me being a scary cat. <laughs> what about you, Christina? I know you said you like to do lots of research. Is that where you draw most of your inspiration from? I feel like I can't top Dan's answer. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you pick me last? That's always a risk when we have such excellent guests. Yeah, true. true. Yeah, I, I do like to do lots of research, research, words. Um, I have very varied interests. Um, you know, ancient Egypt, the Victorians, that's both history actually. Nutrition, dogs, like they're kind of all over the place, but my brain finds weird ways to make connections. Like the premise for the mummy's curse was like, what if I put a character in a coma? Oh, comas, mummy. Mummies are dead. They've got nothing to do with comas. But my brain made that link, and then I ended up from that bizarre link creating one of the most popular characters in the Afterlife Calls series, which is Fadil, who is a 4,000-year-old not-mummy because mummies don't have their internal organs and he is actually alive. Um, so I think for me is it is a combination of the weird research rabbit holes that I go down researching things like ancient Egypt and the strange way that my brain works to make those connections. But also, I'm really, really into psychology. That's probably one of my big loves other than writing dogs and skincare. And so because of that, I know a lot about the weird tricks that the brain can play on us and how to then put that into my writing and manipulate the characters. That makes sense. I like that as well, because they, there's that sort of, I don't remember the exact quote, but that you, you hear it a lot in writing advice in terms of, don't just read one genre, don't just stick to one thing, go out and experience life and you will draw that inspiration, right, from who knows where, it's bound to kick you in the face sometime or other. Yeah, can I just read out Cassie's quote? (laughs) Cassie's comment is brilliant. She says she loves how the Victorians were totally like, oh, mummies have got to be good for you, cheers! Gulps down powdered mummy, they did. They did eat mummies because they thought it had medicinal benefits. Um, Why wouldn't they? And that's why we don't have very many of them left, because the Victorians were fat shit <laughs> did not know that the, the, no yeah. the, that's like the that that's only the top player of how crazy they were mm. the, there's so much more and that's part of why i wanted to bring them back into afterlife calls because they just did so many crazy things there's so many opportunities for like that just absurdist humor that's really fun to play with so i just leaned into that again it's that thing of like combining interests and the fact the victorians were interested in ancient egypt as well so that already ties in with the foundations that I laid in book two. Definitely. I mean, yeah. Who wouldn't want to eat a dried up <laughs> dead body? Um... <laughs> or take part in the tapeworm diet. Thanks for that reminder, Cassie. That's still a thing, yeah. yeah. What, it's still a thing? I'm sure I've seen something about it. Everything's still people... a thing. <laughs> if we still had some mummies going spare, I'm sure people would still be eating them. <laughs> 
<laughs> on that happy note, next question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next question. Um, I want to know about some of your favorite techniques to use then in terms of um, the, the actual telling of the ghost stories and the horror stories themselves. What about yourself, Dan? Is there any that go-to tropes that you like, uh, sorry, go-to techniques that you'd like to use? Do you bring in ones from different genres? Anything uh anything and everything <laughs> yeah so i think the the big one is what i was speaking about before with you know trying to really leave that reveal to the last minute because i mean the key to scaring anyone is really just dropping those subtle clues so that people start to form their own monsters in their head because again like we all have our own fears we all have our way of of seeing the world of the things that we hate the things that we love and so if you can drop enough of a breadcrumb trail to lead them to scare themselves that really is huge for me um and yeah, it's, it's just a case of if you've got the ghost, and if you're about to reveal, well, pop them in. Like, no, let me go back. So that's the breakdown bit. The other part is you really have to come up with a, a protagonist that people care about enough to put themselves in behind the driver's seat of that character as an avatar. So you'd really sit there, read the pages and go, OK, I am that person. I understand why they're getting scared. I know, you know, what the risks are, what the stakes are behind why this person's afraid you know what will happen if they do leave the house that they're about to inherit from whoever it is and they have to stay in there for whatever the money is whatever the story is um but you need to have you need to have someone that people care about otherwise you know when people do eventually get affected or killed as is the case obviously in lots of horror books um they don't they don't care so finding someone relatable finding someone um that speaks to the reader and then leaving all of that fear all of that um all these breadcrumbs to roll up amalgamate until you've got this sickening monster at the end that makes them want to scream giant snowball <laughs> of breadcrumbs is how i imagined that there <laughs> that's what i have every morning for breakfast <laughs> it's sort of a, a gruesome <laughs> conglomeration of metaphors there um, oh yeah that's <laughs> that was beautiful. That's beautiful i love that what about yourself matty do you have any specific ones that you like to go to or do you like to borrow from other genres or something else well, I'm really tapping into the uh, the conventions of uh, mystery or suspense, depending on on uh, what I'm going for. Some of the Ann Kinner books are more suspense in the sense that you know who done it. Some of them are true who done it mysteries, but I'm not really relying on the ghost as the ghost to be providing the scares. So a good example of that is in one of the books. Um, Anne has a Ann Kinner has a showdown at the end of the book with a a spirit that's been pursuing her. But in a lot of ways, um, that confrontation plays out more or less like it would if that person had shown up in person. The only difference is that because he's a spirit, he has to almost be fooling her into doing things that are going to be dangerous for her. Like he can't do it himself. He has to, to, to fool her into it or trick her into it. Um, and it isn't until she realizes that she doesn't have to fall into that, that she gets out of that situation. So um, it's not a, here's the reveal of the ghost who intrinsically themselves is going to be scary. It's just the circumstance that arises, which I think is interesting because there's so many different ways you can, you can put a ghost to work um, in a story. But one thing that I do enjoy is if I have scenes with Anne Kinnear and a dead person and another person and Anne and the dead person are having a conversation. I always have to write out all the dialogue. Then I have to go through and highlight the parts that Anne is saying because the third person in the room is only gonna be hearing her side of the conversation. And so I have to make sure that anything they say or, or do or know 
is based on only her side of the conversation. And then oftentimes I'll go back and I'll adjust her dialogue because you can actually have a lot of fun with that. Like if the person's only hearing her side of the conversation, they might misunderstand or they might uh, make assumptions that they shouldn't about what the, the dead person was saying. So, um, but other than that, it's more the same. The ghost is scary in the same way that they would have been scary or not scary when they were alive. I love that. I, it really feels like you're making your ghost sort of main characters almost. They're playing a massive part in the plot and stuff, not just. Oh sort yeah, of yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. And I imagine those sort of dual conversations can end up in some funny situations too. Yeah, those are fun to work on. <laughs> what about you, Christina? Do you have some specific techniques you'd like to share with us? For me, it's twofold. So my background in writing romance and women's fiction influences how I tell the stories because there's always the balance of the family drama and the workplace drama and the romance alongside the supernatural elements. And it's never either or. They are in equal balance and they influence each other like ghosts, well, ghosts and demons ruined Edie's love life, for example. Will it recover? Um, you know, it influences the backstory of the entire family that the series focuses on. So it's a balance of the two. And the other thing is when I fall down those research rabbit holes, I often discover things that I would like to play with. Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like the mummy thing. Actually, I just really wanted to write about ancient Egypt and I really wanted to write about crazy Victorian doctors. So yeah, it's those kind of rabbit holes. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a fun trope. Oh, what about this one? And that's basically what I've been doing. I've got 14 or 15 books planned for the Afterlife Course series and they're all focused on a different trope or a different theme that ties in with what the characters are experiencing but also their growth as people and that kind of ongoing character arc particularly for Edie who's 17, 18 in the series is really important because they are her formative years and she's realized she is really really powerful and terrified of that power she's not power hungry she wants rid of it but it also makes her a target. So she needs that power to protect herself. So it's about balancing that and those very real emotions that we feel as teenagers and that feel a lot deeper when you're a teenager as well. Obviously, most of us don't have powers like that. So when I say real emotions, I don't mean like fear of being super powerful in that regard. That's but like for yourself. Terms- <laughs> well i don't know maybe, maybe one of you does or someone listening does um but but you know what i mean that fear that anxiety um all those different things that do feel heightened when you are that age absolutely yeah that makes a big difference and as i like to joke about all the time you're very good at putting your characters through absolute hell and that's <laughs> that's a good way to do it <laughs> <laughs> I do want to just remind everyone if you if anyone watching has any questions you would like to ask any of us um then just put them in the chat I can see we have two already but there's um yeah put them in there well I'll ask them anything I don't care uh, <laughs> that, don't say that Ellie <laughs> no I will I'll anything answer you anything. like yeah <laughs> 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 In which case, then, I want to know if any of you have a favorite ghost story. Any takers on that one? Anything that comes to mind quickly? I have got one, if Mm. I can go first. Go Um, Go first, yeah. So mine's got a bit of backstory, too, actually. And I would go and get the paperback of my bookshelf, but I'm in my pajamas. So um, (laughs) I'm not moving. 
Hey, and, we're sharing um, on today's podcast, apparently. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, so after my nan passed away in 2019, you can imagine how horrible that was. She was the woman who raised me. Ellie, it's one of the reasons we became friends. You really supported me during that time. Um, I'm playing with the stress ball, by the way, if anyone wondered what that was on the camera. And um, yeah, it was really hard. And I actually got into reading a series called The World of the Gateway by E.E. E. Holmes. And it's a ghost series set in a school. And the main character is prophesized to basically destroy not just the school, but the entire community of people who help ghosts. And these women are um, gateways to help ghosts cross over. And the men are their protectors. And there's a lot about disrupting those gender norms when people don't want to fit into those gender norms. And the main character doesn't like being told what to do. I don't know why you think I why, why I might find her relatable. Don't comment, Ellie. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, <laughs> the world of the gateway was just a massive source of comfort for me. Um, and I think that was when I really got into ghost stories and horror because it was that, no, I don't believe in ghosts, but actually the possibility would be nice and also confronting that fear of death. And I think that that's also why ghosts have become so big again because of the pandemic and, you know, witches were popular during the pandemic because we all wanted to change reality. But now it is that period of grief and confronting those horrors that we did all live through, that kind of shared grief as the world completely changed as the climate changes you know everyone was touched by covid in some way so yeah it's the world of the gateway by ee e. holmes for me that's good i like that i i started reading the series actually and can confirm it's very good but i have a terrible habit of not finishing things so that that's that's not a reflection on the series <laughs> what about yourself matty do you have a favorite ghost story um one that always pops into my mind when uh, I'm asked this question is there was a movie with Nicole Kidman a number of years ago, ago called The Others. And yes. it was, yeah. that was great. And it was one of these ones. I'm, I'm a big one for a twist. So I was a, also a big fan of The Sixth Sense. Um, but the, the twist at the end of The Others um, yeah. was great. And I keep wanting to watch it again. You guys might be able to watch it. I can't. It's not available. I don't think it's available oh, no. in the US on any of the streaming services. But I just remember it was one of those, like, it's sort of what you expect, but then they decide to change one little thing. Um, and and that's my favorite kind of story, where there's mm -hmm. there's some tweak that the, the screenwriter or the author has made and... Um, and that was not only a fun movie from that point of view, but it was also just a beautiful movie to watch. As I recall, it was very cinematically lovely. And so um, that's one I would throw out there for anyone who has access to it. The Others it's with Nicole so Kidman. Good. At the time, I remember at the time, I, I think the movie is a 12 over here. And I don't think I was much older than 12 when I watched it, but I was like super into watching super scary stuff at the time. So I was like, oh, it's only a 12. It's not going to be that scary freaked me out so much <laughs> like you rewatch it and the second time you watch it it's scarier because now you know what's happening right yeah and I like those ones that rely on creepiness not like gore or jump scares and things yes. like that to me the, the the creepy part is is the fun part definitely definitely what about you Dana I expect to have a favorite ghost story too also I mean uh, Poltergeist will always have fondness in my heart only because that was the first real horror movie that I watched um, and 
you know that's of its time now but i do do still just have that one part in my, my stomach where i was like yeah that was you know the first big one um shelly jackson's haunting of hill house is kind of my go-to recommendation and it's like you know cliche especially amongst horror writers but it's phenomenal from start to finish it's brilliant um i will put a shout out as well to that house of leaves book which again it's not really technically a ghost story but it has all of the elements of fear of the unknown that you could interpret as a ghost story um and i was just googling the name because i can never remember it. it's mark z uh danielewski and it is a it's one of the best most creative books in the sense that it's not just one story all the way through it's told through journal fragments handwritten letters you know and the actual text itself tells the story and kind of like zooms in and zooms out and goes like he gets so creative with the pages that it's just it's an absolute masterpiece so if anyone hasn't read house of leaves i do recommend it mm, i've been looking for some new horror so these are all going on my list oh it's good <laughs> i'm gonna join in and share one of my own and that is it's a um stephen king's stephen king film diary of ellen rimbauer which is based on, I believe, a real diary. Uh, maybe it was slightly fictionalized. That's not a word. Um, but <laughs> this diary of this woman in like early 20th century in America, talking about all the goings on in the house, and it's effectively a haunted house story. But the house is like, you know, built on an ancient Indian burial ground, and um, <laughs> all these deaths happen as it's being built. But then these, the the house tells her that she has to keep building the house and then she'll never die and so the house keeps growing and as such it moves itself and people get lost and people die and it's really great i mean for stephen king as well i mean i a lot of his stuff is a lot darker i think um but this i think is very well done and the, the story and the characters make a big difference in that one because i mean you just root for the main character to kill a husband which is always a sign of a good story you know <laughs> <laughs> what Mar is this saying about you, Ellie? <laughs> I mean, you have to watch it. He he deserved it. <laughs> you know, that made me think of another one um, that, uh, surprisingly, by Anne uh, River Siddons, uh, The House Next Door. Um, has anyone read that? That was um, that was very good. Did that recently what get made into a film? Not I that like I know of, but don't go by me. And evidently, <laughs> that seemed like the only kind of ghosty thing. I had never read anything by her before, and I just happened upon that and um, loved it. And then I started looking through all her other books, and I was like, yeah, none of them seem to be <laughs> more like that. But but that was um, that was one of those fun, super creepy ones. Excellent. In which I'm sorry, I've got to highlight Kennedy's comment before we move on, Ellie. <laughs> Because of your, because of the things in your basement. Yeah, Kennedy said, "Don't check Ellie's basement." And to be honest, I do jokingly refer to it as my murder basement, um, but that's just because it looks creepy. It's not because I murdered anyone. Uh <laughs> there was a table in there. With, there is like, yeah, red there's stuff a on. table. <laughs> there's a was table there in there. I don't think there was red stuff. There's like a table oh. in there that's kind of like how I described it was a good height to do an autopsy. I mean, it's just a coincidence. I didn't do an autopsy. This is why my brain imagined blood, because of how you described it. <laughs> Christina, I won't go in my basement. basement. I won't. <laughs> oh, I mean, there was I a lot of the door, the but record. it's broken. <laughs> anyway, I didn't murder anyone, um, just, in case, just in case anyone was wondering. Shall we? We have a few questions from our lovely... Um, 
audience today. Do you want to put those up on screen for me, Christina? Yep. So okay, first awesome. and foremost, Kennedy would like to hear some things about pacing. So does anyone have any advice on how they deal with pacing in, in a horror story or in, in their ghost story? Matty. <laughs> my, my piece of advice, regardless of the story, is shorter is almost always better. And I think, I don't know that there's ever been an exception to the rule that I'll uh, sort of um, frame out the story and then I'll step back and find every possible way to make it cover a, a shorter period of time. So um, I'm just working on my first novella, which is actually uh, takes place right after book three of the Lizzie Ballard um, series, The Iron Ring. And um, when I first framed it out, it probably covered, oh, I don't know, weeks. I don't, I don't even know what the original duration was, but I've now gotten it down to two days, which is just much, much better for pacing than a couple of weeks. So yeah, I say um, frame it out and then strip out all the possible uh, interruptions in between scenes that slow things down. Definitely keep those tensions high for a short time. And then it's just no time to stop and breathe, just all fear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give people a little breather here and there, but you know, yes. don't say like, and then three weeks later. No. Yeah. Yeah. Kills the suspense. What about you, Dan? Do you find pacing to be something you focus on a lot, obviously, in the horror stuff you write? Yeah. So, I mean, kind of just um, jumping a little bit on, on what Matty said then, like, I don't think it's a genre dependent thing is pacing. Like you have your general how a story should work and your arcs. And, you know, if you study story structure and go through all the different curves and graphs and things, they all generally look the same no matter the genre. Um, so like one thing that I personally like to do is I like to start with that kind of prologue-esque style thing where I'll jab in and start to build the suspense, have that isolated scene where you get the reader to understand what the intrigue is for the story and why it kind of matters in that in that small um, bubble. And then, you know, just build it up as the story goes on. And for me, my the way that I approach story, I'm very much, um, I always talk about uh, panting and plotting as being on a spectrum. So if number one is I'm a makeup stories without any plan and number 10 is fully planning everything, I'm about a three or a four. So I will have a rough idea of what my ending is and then what I try to do is write that first draft just as quickly as possible. Just tell that story, get that on the page, because most of the time, if I'm writing it faster and if I'm in that moment and if I'm there with the story, then the pacing kind of comes because there's not like, you know, two, three weeks between writing sessions in which I'm trying to remember what happened. I'm feeling the story as I go. And then when it comes to editing the story, it's, you know, same as what Matty says, you try and cut out those bits where you feel that it's lagging. But then it's obviously difficult to know all of that yourself and how a reader will perceive it. So I'll kind of in you know the next couple of stages then hand that story to someone, maybe a couple of people, just to then get their feedback and say, you know, did this keep you pulling through or any points where you want to put the book down? Uh, I love a good vomit draft. That's literally how I write all of my stories. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of, it's a process like pacing. I don't think it's something that you're always going to get right in that first draft. Um, it, it, that's definitely why you need those multiple rounds of working through the story and most importantly, getting that feedback from from readers, from your critique partners, whoever it is you use, just to kind of hopefully get that feedback and be able to go, okay, this is how I clean it and make it as pacey as possible. I like that. That's a great argument for a prologue because I love a prologue. Um, There's a lot and... of like, because sorry just to interrupt there's a lot of because i started doing them a fair bit and they work for what i do and then there was a whole argument of like are prologues even relevant anymore who exactly. thinks of crap like if they work for you and if you like them and if your readers like them use them do i use them in every story no but like i do use it as a, a nice technique a lot of the time mm. with horror 
I've seen people like get on their soapbox about prologues, yeah. but I, I like a prologue. Some, yes, it could be cut, but generally speaking, like you say, it's it's setting that scene, you know, putting the point of why you want to read the story, what's going to be coming next, and then building up to it. I like that. Um, okay, Christina, do you have any top tips on keep pacing going in your stories? Well, first of all, you just made me realize one of my upcoming projects needs a prologue. Uh, you're welcome <laughs> and um for me at, i start with um these i write down all my key scenes on post-it notes and then i lay them out on the floor and they get sniffed by millie and she either approves with, with a lick or walks off in disapproval and um visualizing them in that way particularly like physically not on a screen really helps me find those holes like do I need a scene here um is too much happening at once is too little going on and it's actually dragging a bit so then I can move them around like a jigsaw and I find treating any sort of story as a jigsaw really helps because then I also don't have to write in chronological order if I don't want to and like for 95% of my books I haven't written them chronologically I start with the fun scenes which is usually argument scenes um and then work backwards and then write the slower scenes at the end and i find that writing the slower scenes at the end means there aren't too many of them but they weave the story together nicely and also by that point i'm more emotionally invested because i've written those higher stakes scenes already yeah i like that i like that i have actually done something similar right here look so <laughs> my pink ones are the like high tension bits i guess so you can see Exactly. Nice. Um, very, very visually and color-coded. <laughs> I like to see it visually, like Christina said. So we have a question here from Cassie. She said it's interesting. Nope. She's oh, no, that's, that, that's not more of a question. It was a comment, but I thought it was good. It was good to show based on what we were talking about earlier. That was all. Yeah, it's interesting to see how individuals see fear and authors actually showcase the processing of that fear. That's true. That's true. We authors put in a lot of effort behind the scenes. <laughs> Uh, so Cassie's question then do you think relatability is more important than likableness you mentioned relatability yes. earlier Dan yes that, that's my answer <laughs> yeah. no absolutely because yeah. like it needs to be something that people are going to connect with and that doesn't mean like you have to like that person I mean you know one of King's most popular books is The Shining and Jack Torrance is an arsehole like he's not he's not a likable person, but the story is compelling enough and his supporting cast are the reason that people keep reading because you know what the stakes are for, you know, the kid and for his wife and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's it helps, I think, sometimes, depending on what genre you're in, obviously, to make them likable. Like horror specifically, you're gonna get away with probably being a bit more gritty and you know, playing with a darker side. But I think it has like relatability comes from what are the unifying factors that connect me and you, you know, just whoever it is that's on the other side of that page. Those kind of day-to-day -day things that really, like, I think when we talk, when we think about writing fiction, we think about these, or can think about these quite lofty concepts, like being really artsy, all this kind of stuff. But for me, the most impactful things that I write tend to be, like, the day-to-day, -day. like, what do they eat for breakfast? You know, if they're using a spoon, is it right or left-handed? Is a spoon, like, a particular decorative style that reminds them of their nan and all these kind of like memories and like connections and things that people have so yeah just without a doubt for me relatability is the key thing um and then it comes down to genre 
dependence really because i'm guessing in things like romance you probably want to like the people but that's me being totally ignorant to the romance genre no you, you are right there, there um, it's really hard if you want to challenge expectations in romance because i'm currently rebranding hollywood gossip because i got lynched by romance readers for calling it a romance because it doesn't have a happy ever after at the end of book one <gasps> but it does at the end of the series i know i know the series does the book doesn't mm. and that that's kind of the predicament i'm in is that people who come to Hollywood Gossip from the What Happens In series know Tate and Jack have an on-off romance. It is very, very dramatic. And there's a lot of emotion going on in those books. You know, they're dealing with addiction, grief, eating disorders, life in the spotlight, the pressure of being in the spotlight from a young age, being an orphan. Like, it's actually more horrific than Afterlife Calls, frankly, in terms of what the characters go through. But because of that, I have to be really careful how I market it because it's going to be people who are more interested in the kind of psychological reads and human nature than people who are just in it for the romance. But at the same time, they've got to be okay with romance because the central theme is the romance. So it's, it's a really hard one. But yeah, I think in romance, um, you do want an element of likableness, but stuff like a save the cat moment towards the beginning can be really helpful. Can someone explain save the cat? please because my brain's like not braining <laughs> yeah well just quickly as well i think um relatability can sometimes create like likeability like it's easy to like people that you relate to but yeah the save the cat is you know if you've got someone who is a bit harder to like give them a moment in the beginning when they show something like heroic it only has to be something small the whole idea of save the cat is like you know a man's walking across the street he's horrible blah blah blah, blah but he's just picked a cat out of the tree and saved him and then got on with his day we know then that there's a glimpse of good in him and that they're not just a total arsehole which obviously then changes fundamentally how you see them for the rest of the book because it opens up that door to go okay there's good in them that might come out and gives them those opportunities to shine this happens i think the the, the example that's popped into my head is the witcher because i feel like he's not that likable like he's, he's not that exciting of a character he's not that nice of a person but he's very relatable you know he he you know is trying to do good generally he's trying to make a bit of money just to get some food and a bed to sleep in which you know is, is a great thing to do and he has those save the cat moments where he is genuinely be, doing good things with siri and stuff but is he that likable <laughs> as a person i wouldn't say so he's a he doesn't really no. earn anything like big in the sense of like you probably wouldn't hug him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like well, I thought it was oh, interesting. Right. You... <laughs> Go on, mate. I remember reading somewhere that one of the reasons that Stephen King did not like the movie The Shining is that he didn't like Jack Nicholson because everybody knows Jack Nicholson is gonna go crazy. Like the idea was that Jack Torrance is like a normal guy until he shows up at the Overlook Hotel and that if you send Jack Nicholson up to the Overlook Hotel, you pretty much know something really bad is going to happen. And that he liked, I think his name was Stephen Weber, who was in the in the um, U.S. comedy show Wings, um, as more of like an everyman, because it's, you know, he seemed like, you know, the guy next door. And then he goes up to the Overlook and goes crazy. But the question about likability is really on my mind um, these days, because I am working, I was working on the fourth Lizzie Ballard thriller. And I was contending with a situation where at the end of book three, um, the, there's Lizzie and then there's Lizzie's uh, arch enemy, uh, Louise Mortensen. And the way book three ends, um, the, the next scene with Louise has to be 
seconds after her last scene in book three, just the way it's set up. The, the next scene with Lizzie could be weeks, maybe months after the last scene in book three. And so I was struggling for a while with how to like get everybody going in the same direction in book four. And I finally decided to do a novella with Louise Mortensen, arch enemy. And I have to say, I love Louise Mortensen, but, um, and, and readers like her too, but I'm really having fun thinking about how to make someone want to read a novella worth of material about the woman who has been standing against the person everybody loves, Lizzie, and make her relatable. I never want to make her likable, but I need to make her relatable to keep people with the story. And it's a really, really fun exercise. I'm maybe having more fun <laughs> with this novella yeah. than I have in writing I, I did for that a long time. for Trinity, one of my characters. She has like a fake celebrity memoir and everyone who's read it is like, why have you just made me sympathize with this woman who terrorized people I like for like eight books? I'm like, yep. you're welcome. Because everyone's got two sides. That's the reality of it. Like yeah, the, the, exactly. the worst villains are the flat villains. They're the ones that you, totally. you just go, no one, no one is born so evil that that's all they can think about everyone's got those things that they love they've got their weaknesses they've got their achilles heels so like i can totally understand why that's fun for you matty yeah yeah and well, i find that those villains are the most fun like when i was writing about um the crazy victorian doctor in the mean girl's murder um it was just fun to lean into how crazy he was and how we started out actually wanting to help people and then got progressively more nutty and power hungry as time went on and there's part of me's like this would be a really fun story to write about how these characters weave together and i'm like no i don't want to go into historical fantasy that's a whole different no let's not make more work for myself well no i mean you've got enough genres to cover at the moment <laughs> yeah let's not over it. Let's yeah. also can it. i just address the fact this isn't my pajama jacket this is just a <laughs> shirt okay so i just need to address that business on cold. the top pj's on the bottom yeah exactly <laughs> So we have a question here from Kiz. They said, you mentioned before that you don't need to believe in ghosts, but do you read about real life ghost stories for inspiration or understanding? I listen to podcasts when I'm walking the dog. There's something about the podcast, it like it's more immersive because a lot of what, a lot of ghost stuff that goes on, like it's things we hear a lot of the time, right? And it, also because I'm just out with the dog making sure she doesn't try to eat grass, um, it I can concentrate more. So some of my favorite podcasts I've already mentioned, Uncanny, um, The Battersea Poltergeist, The Witch Farm, which are all done by Danny Robbins. Uh is it Haunted Road that I recommended yeah. to you, Ellie, that really freaks you out that one time when Yeah, because I was walking home in the dark and I didn't realize before, but the podcast has got all these like background spooky noises, but I didn't hear them before when I just listened to it my phone on speaker, like on the side. But with my like nice headphones on, I was like walking down the street, like what's coming for me? <laughs> That's freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice those um, sometimes as well, but at least I was walking in daylight. That makes yeah, a difference when alone. doing scary stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, about... Millie would be a terrible guard dog. She wouldn't protect me at all. She'd roll over for a belly rub or run home, but still. Mm. Well, it's still a what distraction you, in some way. Do you, uh, do you read lot ghost stories? I mean, I wouldn't say I go out my way. Firstly, hey, kids, how's it going? <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, 
necessarily go out of my way. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, if I've got a bit of a quiet moment, I might have a look and see what's about there. Um, as I say, when I was sort of ghostwriting a lot of um, very, very ghosty books, I did a lot of research and kind of looked into the real life ones. And for me, it's, you know, it's, I, I love going to source. So again, it comes back to those folktales and where trying to work out the origin of where those come from, because, you know, it's from a different time. Education is different. Science is different. And just like, I like what it is that people have invented from those times that might have been a bit lost two times. So there is a um, a book that I want to buy by uh, Flame Tree Publishing, where they put a collection of real life ghost stories together that I would like to get. Um, but it's not kind of my go to horror thing to do uh i tend to go more for sort of these days cosmic horror and that kind of stuff but like if if one presents itself in my lap i'll i'll read it i will say as well i do like watching um anything that's kind of haunted on netflix or anything on tv there was one which was um uh 28 days oh my mind is not doing good to remember names tonight but there was like one about um like the 28 day haunting or something on netflix i watched uh a few months ago i binged the whole thing because it was just like it's one of those where you especially when it's televised, you, you don't know if it's real or not. But at the same time, it's just really, really fun to watch and, you know, see these people react. Um, I'll try and find out the name for that and because I think you're trying to write it down, aren't you, Matty? I'll try and find out what the name I is. I think so it I is can... just something like 28 Days Haunted. Yeah, I, I think remember it's... seeing it. Yeah, because the idea is that it's all these people kind of literally blindfolded. Um, they're all, like, spiritualists and telepaths and, you know, all these um uh clairvoyants and they get uh blindfolded and brought into these very very historically haunted places told nothing about what's going on and they have to figure out what's going on in those places and they stay for 28 days because there's a theory about the 28 day cycle and around the 28 days when most of the really big hauntings happen and it was just fascinating like it's just you know whether you believe it or not you know it was just fun to watch and i was just in it i just so that kind of stuff i like as well because you realize how many stories there are like everywhere my brother, he um he runs pubs in, in Essex in the UK. And the last one that he stayed in was the the most haunted pub in Henry VIII's time. So, like, it's this huge open place. And obviously, like, at night, it's all closed downstairs. And he used to live in the place above it. And used to hear, like, the creaks and the whistles and the moans of the house. Um, He never sort of mentioned any ghosts and things. But it's that kind of stuff where just all the, the hype and the legend before it is just, it's just very, very interesting. That's really cool. I like that idea that you can uh, pull from all those interesting things. What about yourself, Matty? Do you listen, do you read a lot of ghost stories and pull inspiration from them? I think I more draw inspiration from a, a writing craft point of view, like seeing how movies like The Others and, you know, Blair Witch and these things that I've enjoyed as a reader or a viewer, how they're achieving the effect that I want to achieve. So it's less about learning about the ghosts or learning about the background of hauntings and things like that, as it is more understanding how those stories can be constructed in order to get the desired effect. That makes perfect sense. It's uh, useful to see how other people are doing it, right? And so sort of right. sometimes mimic that kind of setup and that kind of structure. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've just checked the uh, it is 28 Days Haunted on Netflix. Perfect. Thank you, Deb. Uh, we have another question from the lovely Cassie here. What do you think of the idea that you're all processing your own fears in a unique way because of your own experiences and that nobody would be able to share your stories in the same way that you do? What a question. What a question. Anyone have any ideas on that one? 
I just want to say that I agree with that. I do think that there is an element of using storytelling to process your own fears, consciously or subconsciously. Like most of my author friends I've spoken to have written about things that have happened in their life in a disguised way, shall we say. And there are certain things in all of my books that are tied to my personal experiences that I think probably only like two or three people know are from my past. And it's not something I would share and go, this is because of that. But writing about it helped me process that situation and maybe get out a teensy bit of anger and resentment. Just a teensy bit. It's therapeutic. I was going to say, that's really good therapy. On a slightly lighter note, my first novel is about a wizard who has no faith in his own abilities, who doesn't believe in himself whatsoever. And is sort of forced into situations where he has to fall back on his own skills and realizes he can do a lot more than he gives himself credit for. And I don't know where I got that idea from. Um, but uh... imagine that. <laughs> imagine that. Uh... No comment. I'm not. No, not, not. No. Definitely. Uh, I can definitely relate to those things. And it's, it's a way to deal with it in a way. And it's a, it's a worthwhile storytelling, at least in my experience, because if you've been through it, other people have been through it, right? So you can share those experiences and share that kind of therapy in a way. People are going to read it and get a bit of therapy the same way you get a bit of therapy writing, I suppose. I know you mentioned before you do that, Dan, write about people's fears and things. Do you? uh... Yeah, I mean, well, most of I get harangued a lot for the fact that I've killed dogs in my stories. And what? Why? So this is this is it. Like. One of my, like, I've I've grown up with dogs. I'm very much a dog person, and oh, so you what's... said bugs. No dogs. You said killing bugs, and I was like, who? who no, you went worse. Like... It went worse. I think. <laughs> I you, yeah, dog. I can see why people would be upset about that. Okay, exactly. Car- so sorry. Jen, so for <laughs> me, as someone who loves dogs, when I'm writing a story, what's the go-to thing I'm going to think of as a horrific thing to write about? Like it's going to be that. Um, and yeah, it's definitely it's a way of processing your own fears. But I think just generally speaking, because that that question i think is going beyond fears and into you know just how do you find confidence in writing your own experiences like if you're not writing from the heart if you're not writing stuff that is yours if you're not letting yourself tell your story then you're not taking advantage of what writing can do because it's impossible for like if all four of us on this call right now were given the outline to titanic the outline to the others any of these like stories that exist in the world and was said the exact same outline and said write these every single one of us would write something different because we've all got different people that we know we'd see you know different emotions different fears different things from our past that we would then project into the characters it's it's impossible to write a story and not put experiences in and i would argue that's one of the greatest strengths of writing stories and something that i really really push for people to do is even if you you know you think you've lived a very uncharmed life very very dull even if you think you work a boring job and you've got nothing to contribute to a story you're wrong because no one has lived the life that you've lived no one's been through the things that you've been through and ultimately anyone who's been in somewhat a similar situation is going to want to find you because of that relatability so whenever people are like oh i don't you know i don't think i know enough to put out a story into the world it's absolute bullshit because everyone has that bubble of something to be able to go here's a story that will speak that will tell a part of something that other people will never see and yeah i just think it's it's a beautiful thing and it's it's a shame that you kind of have to I, I mean, I get it. I totally get like that imposter syndrome where it comes from. But it's a shame sometimes you have to coax people into being like, you have something worth saying, no matter what genre or story that is. 
sometimes it's hard to believe it. I can definitely say it's hard to believe it sometimes. But mm-hmm. I mean, the, everyone's got something interesting to say. I, I do truly believe that, even if they're not quite sure how to put that into a story or a book yet. <laughs> yeah. And my most, yeah. what I would argue is that my most effective stories in communicating with readers are the ones in which I really let myself speak from the heart. Similar to mm-hmm. kind of like what you're saying, Christine, you know, you don't always tell the people what it is. I've just written a, uh, it's about a 20,000 word novella that I'm kind of out with a few readers at the minute. And it is probably one of the most personal stories I've ever written. And because of that, it allowed me to really reach like this depth that, and obviously if just speaking for myself at this point, like it's still untested. Um, but I really, like, I'm proud of it in the sense, like it's reached a depth that some of the other stories I've written haven't quite reached. Um, and I'm hoping that it will sort of relate to people in, in a way that others won't, because it, there is really sort of like a vulnerability to it. It's very authentic. And I kind of just let myself go, this is the story. Like, let's actually really reach down into the well of who I am and go, cool, let's write some scary stuff. <laughs> Good. More catharsis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perfect. What about yourself, Matty? Do you find any of your real life fears coming up for Anne? I'm sure there are, but I don't know that I'm really aware of them. Except insofar as um, Anne Kinnear is, is sort of a younger, thinner, and spirit-sensing version of me. So many of, the, many of the things you read about Anne, I'm taking from my own experience and how I would uh, react in situations like that. Um, I'm not really using it. I'm not using the ghost story aspect to address um fears of my own yeah it's all baked in there but I'm probably the worst person to be answering that question about my own books I suppose in a way if if a lot of yourself is in the main character they're living out all these experiences that you don't get to even if it's not your fears that they're going through right yeah yeah definitely and um you know I think that the one of the personal um challenges sorry that's my dog shaking in the background I don't know if you can see her back there um, we accept dog interruptions on this podcast this way. <laughs> uh, one of the things that Anne is contending with is this uh, hesitance she has to engage with people because um, she's afraid, you know, she's had the experience of um, having an important relationship break up because the person didn't believe she could do what she could do. He thought she had psychological problems and um, having a small pool of people that she felt comfortable with. And, um, that idea of, of having a small pool of people that you're comfortable with is definitely from me. I don't know that that's driven by a fear of people um, refusing to believe, <laughs> you, you know, something that I'm putting forward as a an ability I have. But I'm sure that, ten, you know, somewhere if you tease that out long enough, I'm sure that there's some connection um, that is what appealed to me about writing that for Anne. And as there should be, it's a good way to do it, right? Like I said, if you've been through it and you can relate to it, other people are going to relate to it. Absolutely. We have another question from Cassie here. Uh, No, this is just a comment, sorry. Um, She says, it reminds me of the Winchester's widow. She was told that she would be haunted by the ghosts of men who were killed by her dead husband's rifle, the Winchester rifles. And so she built her house until she died. Yeah, I have seen that, actually. There's a... um, youtube channel called the watcher that i like and they um go and visit down there these two guys who one one really believes and one really doesn't believe and so it makes for quite an interesting dynamic um if anyone wants to watch some like <laughs> interesting inve- ghost in haunted investigations by two great hosts i think personally um they go to all sorts of places and, and uh 
do things. I'm sure that one was on there, or I've heard it somewhere else before. And yeah, that's similar. You'll keep building the house and you'll never die. <laughs> so I have been I... to that house. It is super fun. Have you? Is it near to where you live then, Matty? No, it was, it's um, in California and I was visiting oh. a, a relative. This was many years ago, but I did, did go and it's a I like that. bizarre, bizarre place. Use the idea of visiting a relative to go to see cool haunted spots. I see what you yes. did. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Cassie also says here, I don't know if Josh would agree, Christina. That was pretty horrific. Uh, I can't remember what we were talking about at the time, but that does sound. Uh, I, I was saying that what happens in Hollywood gossip is worse than what happens in um, Afterlife Calls. And when I made that, <laughs> thing, I had forgotten what I did to Josh and his mother. Um, yeah. That they are very traumatized. Yeah, yeah, okay, Cassie's right. Cassie is right. Let's leave it there. I, I, yeah, let's not say what I did to my characters, <laughs> but it was mean. No, we'll leave it as a surprise. Um, should we relate in terms of relating to characters? Should we relate to the spirit or the ghost? I suppose that depends because you, like you, Matty, you have your ghost doing quite a lot in your stories. Do you try and make them relatable? Yeah, I would try to make all my characters relatable in one way or the other. I think the only exception to that would be in the Lizzie books, which are not ghost stories, but um, there was one character that I just had to have be a psychopathic force of evil because uh, I needed to relate. set up a yeah. <laughs> kind of a moral dilemma for um, for Lizzie to face. But other than that, you know, I, I felt I had to do that for as a plot mechanism. But other than that, I want to make all my characters relatable and the ghosts are, are relatable in the same way they would be if they weren't dead, you know? So uh, some of them you relate to and like, like some of them you relate to and don't like, look, did you notice that my curtain moved? Ooh. <laughs> <Spooky. laughs> I know yeah, it's just the dog leaving. <laughs> what about you, Dan, in terms of your monsters who are sort of just the monster and not necessarily a main character in, in that way, do you still try and make them relatable? Yeah, I guess, yeah, the, the question I'd throw back is, well, not the question, I, it, it depends, you know, what is it you're trying to do with them? Um, because, yeah, if they get a part of the story, if they're sort of modern monsters and they help serve what it is that you're trying to tell, then absolutely they need to be relatable in some way because it just makes that sort of drama a lot higher. But then I've got creatures I've written about that you know, they don't relate in any way to what is happening because they're just they're obstacles so it's kind of you know choosing how you use them whether they're you know tools to move them forward whether they're obstacles for them to overcome it just really depends on the story there's not really sort of for me a definitive yes or no to that one fair enough and yourself Christina I know a lot of your ghosts have great backstories anyway so I imagine mm -hmm. you try and make them relatable yeah it's um for me it's easier if I do make them relatable just because of the way that I think and the way that I write there are a couple of characters I've got coming up that might be less so, but I think sometimes it's actually scarier if these people doing horrific things have relatable motivations. And I always try and come up with something unique or different or human for that motivation, even if that character isn't human. Like, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but at the end of The Witch's Sacrifice, they're, the motivation of the big bad that's been building for the last four books is revealed, and it's one of those moral questions, like, actually, if I was in that situation, might I have felt the same and been compelled to do the same thing? But at the same time, he is trying to hurt people. Oh, OK. 
Cassie just said Thomas was really relatable and I can't believe what she can't believe what I did. <clears throat> yes. Um Th Thomas isn't the big bad I was talking about. Thomas is a 10-year-old Victorian ghost in a flat cap with a football who haunts the local cemetery in my town. And then I weirdly found a gravestone for an eight-year-old boy called Thomas after I created his character, which isn't creepy at all. It is creepy because it's the exact graveyard that you're writing about that you visit. So that is a very creepy coincidence. Yeah. The although that sounds weird now you say that I visit it. I like walking the dog through <laughs> there because it's atmospheric. <laughs> Cassie's given the Mean Girls Murder a nice plug for me as well. Thank you, Cassie. Ah, yes. Mean Girls Murder. Are we ready Christina's for the last question? Book. Our very last question. Let's do it. What is the spookiest thing that has ever happened to you? Dan, do you want to go first on this one? You look no, nice I'll have a think on that one. Someone else can okay. go first. <laughs> I would I'll like to say I've got nothing. Well, spoiler like, spot. What about but... you, Matty? <laughs> do you so have this any spooky was... stories to share? I did. This was this was not really so much spooky in a specifically ghostly way, but um, I love going to Mount Desert Island, Maine, and um, a couple of the Anne Kinnear stories are set there. And I had never been there in the winter, so I decided I was going to go up in January. I went up by myself. Um, as you can imagine, there are not a lot of tourists in Maine in January. And so I was in um, Southwest Harbor, Maine at a place called Sips, which is sadly no longer there. And uh, I decided I was going to write a short story, an Ann Kinner short story that was based in Mount Desert Island in January. So I wanted to walk down to the docks. I knew that some, the, the climactic scene was going to happen in the docks. So I was going to walk from uh, the restaurant down um, Clark's Point Road to the town docks where this climactic scene would happen. And so I did that. It was, you know, creepy and freezing cold. And um, I got there and my second book, The Sense of Reckoning, is based on a fictionalized Claremont Hotel, which is at the end of Clark Point Road in Southwest Harbor. And so it's not open during the winter, but I thought, you know what, as long as I'm down here and nobody's around, I'm gonna go walk around um, the Claremont Hotel. And so I'm like creeping around in the middle of the night practically at the, at the Claremont Hotel. And um, if ever a ghost was gonna show up in my life, it would have been then because it was, it was creepy. And I'm also very glad that I didn't encounter like the Claremont Hotel off-season security guard as I was walking around. Because in retrospect, I realized it was kind of a stupid thing to do. Um, but it was so atmospheric. And I was able to channel some of that atmosphericness into the short story I wrote, which is called Close These Eyes. Um, but uh, maybe there was a ghost following me and I just wasn't quite tuned in enough to it to know. Because if, if it was going to happen, it would have happened there. Could be. I mean, what's a little trespassing? Who cares about that? You know, it's fine. <laughs> that did remind me of something. It, it's not massive. It's not as good as Matty's. But every so often when I'm walking Millie, she hates walks already. She's not a dog that enjoys walks at all. But she will keep looking behind her as if someone's following us. Like she'll just stop and stare. Keep walking a bit. Stop there and it like her posture and her expression and stuff says that something spooked her but there is absolutely no one else there no sights no sounds nothing has changed because i walk around somewhere that's relatively quiet in the middle of the day the graveyard but she's act hmm? the graveyard no well but this is a, this is a different <laughs> route this is a different route the graveyard is actually really quiet as well but not as quiet as the other one um so yeah i, I actually find the graveyard less spooky than this estate Probably because it's right in the middle of the town centre, so you can still hear like people and cars and stuff. Whereas the other estate I walk around, there's nothing. And like unless the 
it's the summer holidays or something there's no children or anything about and so it's literally just me and the dog for this like 10 15 minute route and she's like acting as if someone is following us and it's just unbelievably spooky when she does that because I can't see anything I can't hear anything and quite often I'm listening to a ghost podcast which just makes it worse I love that Millie's just scaring you for fun now just she just does it doing she, she it does yeah I want to share a quick one and give Dan an extra minute to think about his because I have had multiple instances in this house where I've had doors open so like one time I was stood in the bathroom and I could see my bedroom door and I watched it open because my cat wanted to go in I think the ghost is just trying to get the cat into trouble um but the cat's not normally allowed in there one time I came down and the basement door was open you know the creepy murder basement aforementioned murder basement um and my cat came running out like he'd had the best time of his life Uh, (laughs) again not allowed in the basement because it's not safe for cats but the spookiest one was uh don't give me that look i meant not safe for cats in terms of it's moldy not that it's like (laughs) weapons Uh, (laughs) the the spookiest one was not long after i moved in i don't think um a friend of mine and myself we were um laying laminate floor in the kitchen and um you know we were chopping up bits and drinking a glass of wine because wine goes well with power tools and the glass of wine was on the kitchen side literally about two meters from us we could see it and no prompting at all um the i think my utensils thing fell over us for some reason and knocked the glass of wine on the floor and it just smashed and we're like the fuck (laughs) well how did that just happen uh so yeah that was one wine glass down sadly but that's and the cat jumped out at the exact right moment then as well. Did it, was that the Yeah, cat? I don't know which one it Are was. You... But one of them jumped off the side as you were like, the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah, that was the spookiest one because it was just right in front of us and there was just nothing else could have caused that, you know? Even still, I'm not 100% believer. <laughs> Do you have a spooky story now, Dan? Um, I think the, probably the, the spookiest one for me, it's not that exciting, is the loft hatch. Like, just because to this day, I cannot for the life of me figure out, like, because I thought about, you know, winds cutting through the loft or something. But like, because of I've put that loft hatch up before. And as I say, it's got these like two little anchor hooks and I have to wedge those to get those in. And like, I've got a picture somewhere where it's just, you know, lifted out and, you know, mm. off. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure how that happened. Um but the only other sort of, I guess, time I really, really spooked myself was um, there was a space, a, a game a few years ago called Dead Space 2, which is very mm. like sci-fi in space. Like it's designed to be incredibly scary. And my friend lent it to me and said, just make sure you don't play it at night. So at midnight, I sit in front of the TV, <laughs> literally about a meter away from the TV, sort of volume on high, sat there. And I think after about maybe five minutes tops, I like, turned it off and went to bed. It's so much. That really plays as well on that fear of the unknown, doesn't it? Because yes. you don't know what's coming. This is um, it. There's no like pattern to to recognize what's going to go on and where. Everything, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's very well done. It's very well <laughs> done. Perfect. One last question then for everybody: Where can our lovely viewers go to learn more about you and to keep in touch? Matty, do you want to go first on this one? Sure. Thank you so much for this invitation. This has been such a fun conversation. And if people would like to learn more about me, they can go to maddiedollarable.com. Excellent. Super easy. I like that. Dan, where can our lovely viewers go to keep in touch with you and to find out more? 
So I'm a little less easy. I've got three places I can send people to. The oh, first one, <laughs> the first one is activatedauthors.com, which is where I do all my author coaching. And we have a 30 day free trial for anyone who wants to test out what we're all about. DanielWilcox.com, which is W-I-L-L-C-O-C-K-S is where you can find out all the things that I do. And then also theotherstories.net is where you'll find our award-winning multi-million downloaded horror podcast that comes out with new episodes every single Monday. Excellent. Thank you. And Christina, where can we go to find out more about you? So you can find all my books, fiction, nonfiction, fantasy, not fantasy, at ChristinaAdamsAuthor.com. And that is Christina with a K. And also find me on Facebook at Christina Adams Author. I'm there all the time. She is. She's obsessed. Yeah, I, um, I have no life. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I had so much fun talking about ghosts and horror and, you know, realizing our fears in our own writing. It's been, uh, really good. <laughs> it's been good. Thank, thank you, you so much for, thank for joining you so much. us. Yes.